Unique yet common sense opinions on sports. This is Jeff Allen Sports Talk. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the program one of my colleagues from the Nightline Sports Network, one of the co-hosts of the Sons of UCF podcast. Let's say hello to our good friend, Adam Eaton. Hello, Adam. Jeff, thanks for having me back on uh, on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's good to have you because uh, you are great about talking sports and uh, lots of things going on in the sports world to talk about. Uh, so uh, let's get to it. All right. The NFL playoffs. So we have the Chiefs and the 49ers in the Super Bowl. And while Tennessee, I think, was a nice story for a while there as a sixth seed going through the top uh, portion of the uh, AFC bracket, I think the NFL is probably happy that the two seed Kansas City is in there. And uh, San Francisco, of course, was one of the best teams in the NFC all year. So you're getting really two strong teams in this matchup. Yeah, it should be interesting because it's really um, a contrasting of styles, right? I mean, obviously the, the 49ers are a, a ground uh, ground team first. I mean, you saw what they did uh, in the NFC Championship game on the ground, uh, and obviously the Chiefs are uh, are more of a, an aerial attack with Patrick Mahomes and, uh, and the weapons he has on the outside. So it'll be interesting to see which style kind of holds true. I mean, the old adage is in the in the playoffs you got to run the football and play good defense. That would seem to, to favor the Niners, but uh, you know the Chiefs have had some sort of magic going on these last couple of weeks. They've, they've been down early in uh, in both the divisional round and the championship round, and uh, and they've rallied back. So it should certainly be an entertaining game, but it'll definitely be a contrast of styles. And it's like, it's one of those things where you know whatever team can impose their will and get their style rolling will will probably have the edge. But uh, it uh, it certainly will be a good one. I guess the only other option would have been Mahomes Rogers. That probably would have rated really well, but you know, I think uh, I think that's probably the first matchup the NFL would have wanted. But this would have been a close second. Yes, we would have had the State Farm Bowl, if you will. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> so I, I find it interesting because you know the Chiefs. I don't know if they want to play with fire, getting down a third straight game because this is a whole different defense they're facing here. But on the other hand, they're like a fast break offense, and the way they can put up points in a hurry is just astounding. Yeah, if I'm the Niners, my you know, no spoiler alert, I've never been a defensive coordinator. But if I'm the Niners, I'm, I feel like my my game plan, easier said than done, by the way, is to make the Chiefs beat you on the ground, right? To, to try to take away Mahomes' weapons on the outside, specifically uh, Tyreek Hill, Sammy Watkins, take those guys away and and make him beat you on the ground. Now again, easier said than done. Um, but I'm curious if they can do that. Obviously, the, the Niners can get home with four down rushers, and I think that's a unique skill set. Is uh, if they can, you know, drop linebackers back in coverage and and, and dare the Chiefs to run the football with uh, with Williams or, or Shady McCoy, uh, which they haven't really been great at in the playoffs. Uh, that really could be interesting. So I'm curious to see, you know, what the Niners do defensively because you know they they've been, you know, like, I don't know if it's even arguable they they've been the top two to three defense in the league this season. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what they what they allowed the Chiefs to do, and kind of the old Bill Belichick rule, right? Was was take something away and make them beat you someplace else. Curious to see if they can uh, if they can make the Chiefs beat them on the ground. Yeah, and, and conversely, I think it's interesting as well because you know San Francisco, if they can run the ball like they were and keep the Kansas City offense off the field, that can work to their favor too. I kind of thought Tennessee got away from the run and hurt their own chances. Well, that's, yeah, that's the flip side, right? So you want to try to take away the run if you are uh, Kansas City's defense, which hasn't been their strong suit. You know, they, they did hold Derrick Henry you know, pretty well in check. Um, but obviously, if you're the if you're the Chiefs, you, your game plan is make Jimmy Garoppolo beat you. 
I think I, I heard on the radio or heard somewhere that he threw eight passes in, in like an hour and 45 minutes of real <laughs> game time, uh, which is just absurd. But, you know, he didn't need to, right? If it's not broke, don't fix it. You know, if I'm the Chiefs, I'm thinking, are there, are there more ways I can get Garoppolo to try to beat me? I will say this, though. If you think back to, to the, the matchup between the Saints and the 49ers in New Orleans, mm-hmm. Garoppolo outdueled Drew Brees. I mean, sure, he had other weapons, and, and sure that you know the defense helped out there, but you know he was able to throw the ball around that day and, and, and took down the Saints and Drew Brees. So, you know, does he have another performance like that in him? And do the Chiefs think that that's their best avenue? Is to say, hey, Jimmy, we're not gonna we're not gonna be scared of uh, of you throwing the ball. Go ahead and, and, and throw all day. And you know, can he execute on that? Or uh, you know, will uh, will Shannon even let him try that? I think it's going to be such an interesting contrast of styles. Um, really, one of those like chess match type games where um, you know it's it's going to be you know who can impose their will, like I said, and who can uh, who can really get the uh, the other team to do what they uh, what they really don't do best. Yeah, and I think uh, you you hit the nail on the head there too because I think Garoppolo Garoppolo is a much a very capable quarterback, if you will. It's not like you know they're throwing Jameis Winston out there. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway. Uh, we, of course, we're both uh, fellow Dallas Cowboy fans, and I think uh, both of us on board with the long-awaited <laughs> coaching change that finally took place. Cowboys bring on Mike McCarthy, and what I will say is, you know, he certainly has a much bigger resume than Jason Garrett does. I guess the key will be, can he keep Jerry Jones out of his way long enough to get what he needs to get, get accomplished? I mean, this is what Jerry does, right? I mean, he talks the talk, right? You know, he, he brings out the coach and says, we're going to have a, a partnership here. It's going to be equality, and we're going to have a, an equal say. And then, you know, we, we start hearing things really early on in coaches' tenures. You know, it happened with Jason Garrett. It happened with Wade Phillips. I guess really the only coach that ever had any measure of autonomy there was probably Bill Parcells. And, and you're dating back, what, 15 years now at this point for, from, that, from that time period. You know, my initial reaction, you know, Jason Garrett, uh, you know, a cowboy for life, although now he's with the Giants, so I think we have to not like him. I'm not sure how that works just yet. But, you know, it, it was it was just time for a new voice. And uh, um, I, I will tell you, initially when I heard Mike McCarthy, my first thoughts were kind of an uninspired choice. I mean, I think the hopes were that we'd go find this hot coordinator or hot college coach and revolutionize what we do. Uh, but then you sit back and you look at McCarthy's resume, 125 wins. Uh, obviously with the Packers from from 06 to 18. Um, so he's got pedigree. He's got a Super Bowl. Um, you know, he's, he's had a, a, a bunch of 10-plus uh, win seasons. And so you look at his resume, and I said, okay, this actually isn't so bad. The only wild card is he did all this with either Brett Favre and or Aaron Rodgers. And you say to yourself, okay, is, you know, is, is he – the kind of coach that can get the most out of a Dak Prescott and, and, and turn him into what Rodgers is, and I don't think it'll be at that level, or was was he a coach because of how well Rodgers and that team played? That's really the question you have here, but you can't argue the resume. 125 wins uh, over 13 years is uh, is a pretty impressive record. Yes, and uh, consecutive playoff appearances. Of what he had like nine straight, I think. So you know, Jason Garrett was lucky to to string you could couldn't string two in a row together. <laughs> so I think it's kind of interesting from that aspect. And and you you harken back to Parcells. And you know, he did, he did get Parcells autonomy until he couldn't help himself and get involved. Jerry Jones, that is. And once he brought Terrell Owens in, I thought that was the beginning beginning of the end of the Parcells era. Yeah, it's, it seems to me again, and obviously I'm not I'm not intimately involved in the building. It seems that Jerry's ceded a little bit of his control to his son Stephen, 
um, particularly on personnel stuff. So I and, and I get I don't know how far you know the apple falls from the tree on that one, but it seems like Jerry has stepped back a little bit maybe in that respect. You you don't hear him going out and and kind of doing you know the the Terrell Owens type moves. And the reality is, I mean Dallas is is pretty cap strapped if they do bring back Dak, if they do try to bring back Mark Cooper. So he's not going to have that kind of money to play with. I think he's comfortable with his pieces, you know, and, and really I think he, he put the blame of the season on, on the coaches, which unfortunately you can't really argue with some of that methodology. So it'll be curious to see if he kind of lets McCarthy get, get out of his way. My question to you, though, is if if you had to describe McCarthy's offense, how would you describe it? I think when you think about some coaches, you know their air raid, right? You know their ground and pound. You know they're going to be ball control. How would you describe Mike McCarthy as an offensive play caller? I think that's the thing that I've struggled to understand is what should we expect out of this offense? You know, how, how will it be different from what we saw in Jason Garrett? What are the things that McCarthy is kind of known for as, a, as an offensive mind? Yeah, that's a that's very interesting. The, the the way you put that question, and you kind of have to stop and think. Okay, well, what what were the Packers besides having a great quarterback? I would think, and I think we saw more of it this year with the Cowboys than we had in the past. I think the Packers did a lot more with motion in their offense and trying to disguise what they were doing, which is kind of like the hot thing these days. Um, but yeah, that is a that is a very interesting question that uh, breaks down. Was is it was it McCarthy or was it Aaron Rodgers? And yeah. I, and and you know, I would think it's you know it's probably like the Belichick Brady argument to some extent, right? Well, you think about Green Bay, and they never had a great running game in McCarthy's tenure. I think they had a a few backs. You know, Eddie Lacy comes to mind. I mean, they had some guys who you know, filled in and had a couple of good seasons. They never had a consistent running game. And obviously, you know, Dallas has invested a ton of money in, in Zeke Elliott. And so I think the pressure is going to be on McCarthy to figure out how you leverage the, the running back spot. And, you know, I think McCarthy's offense, whatever it was, whenever it broke down, Aaron Rodgers just, you know, got out of the pocket and made a play. And, and that's just not something you drop in a playbook. So, you know, will McCarthy's offense still function if Dak Prescott doesn't have that same ability? And let's face it, not many people have that ability. It's a, that's a, a trade exclusive to Aaron Rodgers and, and maybe a handful of guys in history. You know, so how, how will that offense look when, when that first read's not there? You know, Dak, for, for all of his strengths, you know, he doesn't have the arm strength of Aaron Rodgers, doesn't have the accuracy of Aaron Rodgers. So what's that going to look like? I think that's my biggest question. And, and I forgot to mention in all of this, from what I understand, Kellen Moore being retained as offensive coordinator yes. will still call the plays. So how does how does that work? Is it McCarthy's offense and you know Kellen Moore's calling the play? So I think a lot of dynamics that have to be worked out in Dallas, and it certainly will be an interesting year. Um, and 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 I guess we'll see if if Jerry's gamble was correct. Was it really Jason Garrett? And, and can another voice really get in there and uh, and make a difference this year? Yeah, I will say this: I do find that Dallas is more effective when Dak Prescott does use his legs, maybe more of the runner than a, as a passer. And I think the way I understand it is that uh, it's going to be Mike McCarthy's offense, but they are going to, quote-unquote, merge the terminology so they don't have to learn new terminology and that uh, Kellen Moore will call the play. So we'll see if that's really the case. So a lot to be determined there. So you mentioned Jason Garrett going to New York as the offensive coordinator. Eli Manning announcing his retirement. And yes, I'm going to fall into the same trap as all the uh, sports talk shows and podcasts are doing this week. Is Eli a Hall of Famer? I mean, I would think his Super Bowls are probably going to get him in. But when you look past the Super Bowls, the numbers are rather pedestrian. 
Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, you know, I think you, you think about, well, it's not just his, his Super Bowls. I think it's the way in which he won those Super Bowls, right? Mm-hmm. If, if he had, no, Trent Dilfer won a Super Bowl, and we're not talking about him in the Hall of Fame, right? right? It's, it's, the, it's the way that he did it. Now, the first one, you you know, the Tyree catch, he got out of the grass, made a great throw. You know, the, the second Super Bowl, that, that throw on the sideline to Mario Manningham was, is really just perfectly placed. You couldn't have done it any better. I think it's the dramatic way in which he won Super Bowls that, uh, that people think about. And I think the reality is this, you know, I, 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 not, to, not to disparage any other quarterback and, and, and some of the other things that folks have done, but I think the reality is the media at large who votes on these awards – they like Eli Manning, and he's a good person for all all accounts. He's a Walter Payton uh, Award winner. Um, you know, he's you've heard countless stories this week of, of the kind of person that he is. I think you couple the Super Bowl memories with his famous last name, uh, which unfortunately will be a factor, and the fact that he was a good person, the media enjoyed him. I think he gets in. Now, is he deserving? I think you certainly would, would have to debate that a little further. But I think he gets in just based on those memories, his last name, and the relationship he had with the media at large. Yeah, and I will say this. Uh, and I thought it was very classy that uh, once he was supplanted by Daniel Jones, you know, he did not cause a rift with that team. He did not utter a, a bad word at all. And that uh, he stayed pretty classy and true to his nature in that in that regard. Yeah, again, I, you know, I've, I've been, um, you know, born and raised to not like it, the blue and red. Uh, but uh, you, you can't argue with the kind of person Eli is. Uh, you know, you heard a bunch of stories this week from from various shows about things he did and, you know, the, the way that, uh, that he supported his teammates. And, uh, you, you know, again, as much as perhaps I didn't root for him based on the, the jersey he wore, um, you know, by all accounts, he, he was a, a good person, a good teammate. And I think that is going to factor in when it comes down to Hall of Fame. Uh, I'm looking at stats, 366 touchdown passes. Um, you know, I think his stats are, are probably right on that line where you could nudge him either way. I think, again, I think he nudges over uh, just based on uh, who he is and what he accomplished um, in those two Super Bowls. Well, and in, in ironically, okay, quarterbacks who have won multiple Super Bowl titles, I'll go through a list here. Troy Aikman, Hall of Famer. Joe Montana, Hall of Famer. Terry Bradshaw. Hall of Famer, Bob Greasy, Hall of Famer, Roger Staubach, Hall of Famer, Bart Starr, Hall of Famer, Ben Roethlisberger, still active, and Jim Plunkett, who really is the only retired player on that list that is not in the Hall of Fame. Interesting. Yeah, the Hall of Fame stuff is really going to, you know, you know, Mike and I, uh, my, my co-host on the Sons of UCF show, we had this debate on our show this week, and it was largely around the Baseball Hall of Fame, but, you know, the Football Hall of Fame is, is just as, as, as much in the same boat with with the advent of you know technologies and 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 the way that athletes are are you know training these days, it's it's so difficult to look at folks now because numbers are going to pop off the page at you. You know, it, it happens in football all the time. You know, guys are catching more passes. The offensive side of the ball is dominating more than it ever has. It's going to be really interesting to see how the NFL and the Writers Association adjust to this in the next five to ten years because you're going to find guys with stats. And you're going to look at guys with stats, and they're going to have more touchdown passes than a Troy Aikman and, and more rushing yards than certain running backs. But does that mean they're Hall of Fame worthy? I think I think there really has to be kind of a level setting at some point because, you know, athletes today and, and the schemes and the, and the rule changes, um, it's going to be really interesting to see how the Hall of Fame evolves in the next five to ten years. And I think Eli is kind of right on that cusp of the beginning of that, that trend around – decent numbers but you looked at him on film and on on the field and you said was he always the best player on the field and you scratch your head a little bit i think he's kind of one of the first generation of those guys where 
you, you start to say, okay, we've got to look at this a little differently because numbers are going to really start to skew some of the stuff on one side. Well, you look at the case of Drew Pearson, the uh, great Cowboys wide receiver yeah. in the 1970s, the only member of the 1970s all-decade team that is not in the Hall of Fame. His numbers were just fine for that era of football. And you look like, like a contemporary of his and Lynn Swan, who you know was not the best wide receiver on his own team, and Drew Pearson is not in the Hall of Fame. Lynn Swan is. And you can argue that, you know, Drew Pearson made as many memorable and clutch catches as a Lynn Swan did. And, you know, that to me is like, you know, I I, I will I'll freely admit, you know, Roger Staubach is 1A and Drew Pearson is 1B in my all-time favorite Cowboy list. So I am definitely passionate about it. Um, why he is not in the Hall of Fame, and the, you know, see the gut wrenching way that he got uh, he got uh, left out again was just heartbreaking for me. Yeah, that video was uh, was tough to watch, right? You could you could see the raw emotion and the the, you know, the hurt feelings on his you know on his face and his body language. But you know, the, Mike and I talked about this again on the show this week, and and my my biggest concern with how these Hall of Fames work, and we'll stick the football for right now because that's what we're talking about is. It's almost as if you're not being compared against the greats or you know the historical measures. You're being compared against the same guys who are going in as you. And there were countless years. And again, To is a whole different animal. And I understand his baggage off the field. You know, but Chris Carter is another example of a guy who didn't get in his first couple times because other receivers were getting in that year. And I, I think you, you start to get a slippery slope when you're saying, "Hey, okay, we have too many receivers in this year, and you know we don't want to take three receivers, and we don't want to take three of this particular position." It almost becomes you're being judged against the folks in your class versus being judged against the historical measure, which makes you a Hall of Famer. And I think that's where guys like a Drew Pearson kind of get kind of get caught in the wash there because, yeah, Randy Moss has great stats. He's he's got to go in, no no question. You know, Chris Carter has great stats, got to go in, no question. Terrell Owens, for all the baggage, you know, had a really good career and probably makes sense to be in the Hall of Fame. And so these these new guys just keep jumping, and you know they don't turn back and say, "Well, let's let's look at the older guys because you know you're you're comparing that class that year." And so I don't have the answer to it, but I, I do think it's interesting to think about: is there some sort of a Hall of Fame, you know, reform initiative that comes around in the next couple of years to to address this? Because I think in some respects you're you're comparing yourself against who's in your class, and and that doesn't always necessarily um, you know give you the great or, or the best criteria to decide Hall of Famers. Yeah, well, we'll maybe we'll touch on the Baseball Hall of Fame in a second because uh, one of the things we wanted to talk about was uh, the cheating in baseball that uh, was largely uh, attributed to the Houston Astros and has now claimed three managers that, you know, these teams have to go find new managers, uh, you know, in January and, and now close to February. Um what is all your take on all this uh, on this brouhaha of the Astros cheating scandal? Well, I'm going to uh, personalize this for a second. And uh, my first initial thought was, uh, you know, let me all backtrack. I was a huge baseball fan all throughout college. I uh, was a Cubs fan and, and enjoyed watching the Cubs in the afternoon on, on WGN and caught all the games. And then, you know, once I became an adult and I had a real job and I couldn't stay home at 2.20 in the afternoon to watch <laughs> opening day, you know, then I, I kind of migrated to the team in my market, which was the, the then Florida Marlins, now Miami Marlins. And then I moved out of market, and I really just lost touch with baseball. I didn't follow baseball for a number of years. I kind of replaced it with soccer as kind of like my third sport behind football and basketball. And so for me, and I don't know how other folks take this, and I don't know how I don't think this is the way Major League Baseball intends this. But when this story started coming back out, 
I was glued to the TV to see what this was and understand what happened and to really um, get all the details. And that's the first time in a long time for me personally that I found myself really checking in on what's going on in baseball. So part of me wonders, while it's not what MLB wants, you know, it got baseball back to the forefront a little bit. It stole headlines away from football during the playoffs, which is not easy to do. It stole headlines from the NBA with, with the All-Star game coming up and, you know, kind of the, the beginning of the March of the regular season. It stole headlines away from college football right around the playoff time, right around that piece. And so I wonder how much of, of that, although not the way it wants to be done, that Major League Baseball kind of moved to the forefront. So that's the first thing for me was I found myself actually paying attention and watching this and reading it and consuming it. Now, in terms of the cheating in general, I don't have an issue with some of the things that go on in baseball. Sign stealing, you know, I think some of that stuff is is commonplace in the game. I think it happens in all sports, right? You see the football um, sidelines every week in college, and they have guys holding up curtains around defensive coordinators so you don't see their signals. I think that's just part of, you know, of, of competition, and you know, teams trying to get over on their opponent. And to me, that's the being, only issue. And, and to me, that's being observant, right? <laughs> Correct. Yeah. The all the issue I have with the Astros is the the use of the the technology elements to further the scheme. If you know, I, I think it was during the playoffs last year. There was a I think it was a pitcher for the Rays. If I have this right, I think he was tipping his pitches. Right. I think it was he was holding the glove up to the chest. If it was a fastball to the belt, it was a curveball. And I think it was Alex Bregman on the Astros. They had a perfect shot on the, on the telecast where he said to the, the guy on deck, if it's high, it's a fastball. If it's low, it's a breaking ball. I think that's all within the rules, and I think that's all <laughs> within sort of fair competition. But if you're going to start using technology and cameras and monitors, that's where you get me and say, okay, this was a, this was a, um, a premeditated scheme to get over on the opponent. And I think that's where you cross the line for me. Now, did I think everybody needed to be uh, terminated and, and lose their jobs? I mean, that's that's uh, that that seems a little harsh, uh, particularly Carlos Beltran. That that one seemed a little harsh for me, but I understand why why it has to happen to distance yourself from the from the scandal. But I'm good with everything up until you start using technology. And that point, that's when it's premeditated. That's when it's a scheme, and that's when it doesn't feel like the right thing to do from a sportsman standpoint. Yeah, and you know that, and that's an interesting thing you bring up there because. When you introduce the technology piece to it, you know, it's not like it's it's no longer, okay, I've observed this and I will verbally tell my teammate this. Now you're, you know, coming up with a an elaborate way to communicate. If if this is really true that they had, you know, buzzers like, you know, your TGI Fridays uh, I'm waiting <laughs> list <laughs> under their jersey, that is, to me, would be incredible if that was proven to be true. Well, I, I think, you know, again, I, I did not play baseball, so I do not want to opine on this as if I have knowledge, right? The Astros won 101 games that season, right? Um, and I, I think there's an element, even if I knew the pitch that was coming, would would I still be able to put it in play and, and you know, and, and get a hit or get on base? I think some of that stuff has to be figured out, and, and I don't know how much it really helped. I mean, it's one of those things sometimes I think where you think things help, and I, I guess I'd love to know from the player standpoint how much it really helped them. But again, when you introduce the technology element of it, that's where that's where it's premeditated. That's where it becomes a scheme, and it's it's less about hey, I've I've observed something, I've recognized something, or I faced this guy before, I know what he does, or I was on this guy's team last year in another organization, and I understand what what his tendencies are. I think all of that's fair play, and all of that is is um, is 
acceptable in the uh, in the battle of the uh, of the arena, if you will. But when you add in cameras and buzzers and monitors, that's where I think it, it goes over the line. Yeah, and so when you you were talking about the baseball Hall of Fame, now you know this is where cheating kind of comes in as well because you know the steroid users that have not uh, gained admittance to the hall. Uh, you know, you could look at the Astros and say, okay, you might have a couple players on this team that are trending to potentially be Hall of Fame players, but now they've got this cloud over their head. That'll be interesting to see how that works. I, I, it, it's you know, I'm curious how the writers will hold that versus the steroid guys. You've you've seen obviously what's happened to to Bonds and Clemens and 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 McGuire and Sosa. Those guys, you've seen sort of how how the writers have taken that. Pete Rose obviously is, is a legendary example. You know, I'm curious to see how that will be held. I think looking at the Astros, I don't know who their Hall of Famers are. Beltran's is a possibility. I guess if Jose Altuve continues on, he's a possibility. Um, I would be curious to see how they'll think about that. You know, baseball of any sport and the writers of any sport, I think they protect their historical um, numbers and they protect the, the integrity of the game more so than any other sport. My, my suspicion is the writers, you know, will want to keep them out. But by the time Altuve and some of these guys are, are up for the Hall of Fame, It'll be a new guard of writers. It'll be a new guard of, of folks covering the game. So it will be interesting. My suspicion, though, is that baseball's typically been pretty, pretty ardent in their, uh, uh, in their, um, you know, I guess their defense of uh, the integrity of the game. And so I don't, I don't know why this would be any different for the writers. Yeah. Well, I will say this, and that's a great point you bring up about the the new wave of writers that will be in in taking over this charge one day. Uh, I think a change in both Hall of Fames is uh, having fresh voices in there is probably going to be a very good thing come down the road. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, it's interesting that the writers are the ones deciding who gets in. And, you know, the reality is that the writers have a bias in some respects. And it's not, it's not necessarily a negative thing. I think we all have a bias about something in our lives, right? You and I just admitted we have a bias about the Cowboys. We always think they're going to be the best, right? Um, and and so it's some of that stuff's just inherent. But, you know, I, I think there's, there's so much bias involved, Um and that it'll be interesting to see how you know how a new age of writers where you know the days of the the traveling beat writer you know following around your major league team for 162 games that seems to be falling by the wayside more outlets are covering it remotely you know they have national columnists are just going to certain sites you know and, and newspapers obviously are, are having their struggles so it'll be interesting to see how that how that evolves when you have sites like the athletic and you know then sports illustrates maven site where you're not always following the team on the road but you're covering them from a distance um i wonder how that evolution in the way that the, the sports media is changing um i wonder how that will impact some of this stuff moving forward yeah and you know you could think back even to maybe as long ago as 30, 40 years ago, you know, the beat writers that traveled with the team, those guys became buddies of the players and would often look the other way and not report things that uh, uh, that they would do in today's day and age, that's for sure. Well, and the converse is true, right? If, if, they, if the players were, were less than courteous to them, you know, they held it against them too, right? So um, I think just, just not having that day-to-day interaction anymore and a, a lot of uh, media now covering things remotely and, you know, covering things, you know, on, on, on more of a, um, an ad hoc basis and, you know, hiring um, different folks just for certain events. Uh, it'll be curious to see how that evolves over time. Yeah, definitely. Well, I will have to admit I have had one eye to my right looking at the TV. Celtics and Magic playing tonight. And uh, Taco Fall was called back up to the Celtics. And I'm hoping that in the words of Brad Stevens' daughter, 
that he'll give the people what they want, <laughs> and we get ta- a taco fall sighting at Amway tonight. Yeah, it, it, look, you know, maybe again, speaking of bias, right? Obviously, I'm a, I'm a UCF uh, uh, fan and, and alumni, so Taco Fall is somebody that I've, I've followed for years. Obviously, with with his time with UCF, um, but reality is for me, I I don't know how you don't root for this guy. I mean, he's 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 been a guy who's he's worked hard. Uh, he's obviously, you know, despite the fact that he's you know seven foot five, seven foot six, and you know he's got some of uh, some of the genetic gifts. Um, he hasn't had the easiest um, career. He's battled injuries. Um, he's battled kind of learning how to be seven foot five and how to control his body. Um, we've watched him kind of grow up and learn to play the game. And I think it's just a cool story, man. And I, I'm, I'm rooting for him. I, I understand the. Uh, the odds are long, but I do think that there is a niche for him in the NBA. I don't think he can be an every night center. I don't think he's going to be a guy that's going to get you 40 points a game. But I think there's a niche for him in the NBA. I think the Celtics, if I have to be honest, I'm not a huge Celtics fan by nature, but I think it's probably the best organization or one of the best organizations to go to. Yep. Brad Stevens is a, is a really smart coach. I think they're progressive in the way they think about their players. Um, and so I think he'll have a chance to go there and develop and, uh, and maybe make him, himself a, a, a serviceable uh, NBA end-of-the-rotation type player throughout his career. But, again, it, to me, it's a cool story. Uh, I love how he's embracing it. I love how the Celtics are embracing it. Uh, the fans are embracing it. He was up there as one of the top vote-getters uh, for the All-Star game. Obviously, he won't he won't get a chance to play in it. But I just think it's a cool story for the NBA. And, uh, and, and again, as a proud UCF alum, you know, to have him out there, you know, sort of showcasing, you know, UCF and, and what he's about, um, it certainly is something that, uh, that I'm pretty happy about. So I, I hope – I wish him the best. Again, I don't think he's going to be one of these – you know, uh, 32 a minute, uh, 32 minutes a night kind of players. But I, I do think he has a niche in the NBA if he finds the right fit. Yeah, you know, I find it interesting that he uh, has shrunk a niche since joining the NBA. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they, yeah, they, they now they look at him without their shoes off when they when they measure them or something. I don't know um, if he can say injury free too. Obviously, that was his his biggest challenge at UCF is he was injured a few different times and yeah, that really kind of slowed up, up a couple seasons in particular. So. If he can, if he can stay uh, injury free, and and the Celtics obviously he's only played in four games this year so far, um, and, and so if he can stay injury free and develop his game, uh, again I'm I'm really curious to see what his career will be because I, again I think there's a place for him, and I'm and I'm I'm not afraid to tell you I'm I'm rooting like heck for the guy to uh, to get a chance. Yeah, and you know I think he's also created a bit of a quandary for them too because you know he's killing it in the G League. And, you know, it's probably better that he does play in the G League so that he, he does continue to get reps and continue to get better instead of, you know, being on the Celtics full time and not getting any PT. So I think that's a an interesting quandary that he has kind of developed there. And, you know, I think his place might be, you know, hey, you know, let's uh, let's, you know, change the game up a little bit if they're struggling and, you know, jam the ball down inside and use his defense. So I definitely see your point there that uh, there there is definitely a role player opportunity for him there. Yeah, I mean, any number of scenarios, right? Late game situations, you want to guard the basket, right? Taco's a great opportunity. You know, late game, you want to guard the inbounds pass. You put a seven foot five guy in the inbounder, that's going to be hard to, you know, hard to, uh, 
hard to negotiate. If you've got a team that can really defend the perimeter really well and, and just put Taco in the paint, if, if someone gets past to the defender, Taco's there to at least influence the shot. I think there's options for him, more defensively than offensively, because he hasn't really been the most gifted offensive player. But I will say he's improved. I mean, the highlights you've seen of him, he's gotten the ball in the low block, he's able to make a couple of moves, um, and with his height, you can't teach that. So, you know, if, if there's a game and you need a you need a late tip in, you need a you need a sure rebound. Um, I do think there's some spot opportunities for, for Taco to get in there and uh, and make a difference. Now, obviously, the league has changed a ton um, from you know from where we were ten years ago, even when you know the Heat were playing the the Pacers and Roy Hibbert was you know the huge uh, impediment to, to LeBron and the team at that point. But I do think you know he'll find his way. And again, I think the Celtics might just be the right fit for him, just based on the way they think about their organization. And by the way, the Magic lead the Celtics at the half, 57-53, so we have a half left to go to see if uh, Taco can get an appearance uh, in the Amway Center. Uh, I'm certainly keeping my fingers crossed for that. And speaking of the Magic, I believe they're holding down the seven spot right now in the Eastern Conference, uh, trying to uh, make back-to-back playoff appearances. This has been kind of an interesting year, a little up and down, but, uh, you know, it was a... It was a around this time last year where they kind of caught fire and uh, and finished strong. So hopefully I can do that. And I like the fact that, you know, Markel Fultz is really, you know, starting to continue more and more to uh, put his imprint on this team. Yeah, he's a great story. I, I think, you know, he's a guy when he got traded to the Magic and he was sitting out, you know, I kind of wrote him off in like the Anthony Bennett first round sort of uh, number one overall pick bus. I, I kind of just, you know, put him to the side of my head. And, uh, and I will admit, he's, he's proven me wrong, um, and he's played really well. Um, you know, I think all things considered, I, you know, you, you don't even really necessarily recognize that he had some of the shoulder issues and whatever the other, you know, elements I think that were at play at that. But, I mean, the Magic have a tough run of it. I mean, you said seven spot right now. You know, they're three up on the Nets. Uh, who you know? Who knows what the Nets are, depending on what Kyrie looks like. Um, and they're eight games behind the the Sixers, so it feels like they're really going to be in a seven eight battle throughout the rest of the year, unless you know something drastic happens. So you know, it really kind of says can they can they remain consistent um, and can they continue to get good performances? You know, Aaron Gordon is a player that you know, you love his athleticism, you love some of the improvement he had, but you know. Can, can he take over a game? And I think that's the thing you, you wonder what the magic is. While, while Vucevic is a, is, a, is a good low post player, when they need a shot, when they need to get one basket, who's the guy that you say, we're giving the ball to this person? It's so tough, in my opinion, to have your best player be in the post because he, he can't handle the ball. He can't bring the ball up. He can't break the pressure. You're, you're relying on somebody to get him the ball. So, you know, who is that guy for the Magic? I think if they develop that, if it's Fultz, you know, if Aaron Gordon kind of steps in that role, um, you know, I think that'll be the, the, the thing that'll kind of propel them to the top right now. The Nets seem to be reeling. Um, you know, the Kyrie effect seems to be real there right now. So, you know, they, they could have a good, solid, firm grasp on that seven spot, but me personally, I want to. I want to see who who that last uh, who that last shot taker is for the Magic, particularly as as the games get tighter and the uh, and the standings get tighter down the stretch. Yeah, I mean, you could think of a uh, Terrence Ross, but he's a six man, so he's not not maybe not always on the floor at that particular time. Um, yeah, that's a that's definitely an interesting spot that they have to kind of figure out. Uh, you know, who is going to be the guy who's going to be you know I'm going to carry you to the finish line, right? 
Yeah, if you're playing the Magic, who who scares you, right? If you're if you're you know you're playing them in a in a you know seven game series, who's the guy that you say, hey, this guy scares us, he can't beat us? And now that doesn't mean that they can't have you know um, a good run. You think about that 2004 Pistons team, I think it was, where it's basically just a, a bunch of guys who were on fire. Even you really think about last year's Raptors, as much as Kawhi was the focus of that team. You know, you had big performances from Siakam and Van Bleet. Um, so, you know, who's the guy in the Magic that scares you um, from the other team perspective? And I think the more they can figure out who that person or who those persons are, I think that'll help them bode well. But right now, they're, like I said, seven seed. They're projected to face either Miami, Toronto, Boston, Indiana, somewhere in that mix. So um, they certainly have their work cut out for them. But um, it, it certainly is uh, is interesting. I, I'd love to see, too. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really surprised that Mo Bamba and sort of his – his play or his, his lack of play or lack of production, um, you know, that's a guy that you felt like had all the tools and the skills. And, you know, if there's some way he can start putting it together and, and kind of living up to that promise of a top five pick, I think that'll be huge for the Magic. But unfortunately, we just haven't seen that on Obama yet. Yeah, no doubt. And uh, big story in the NBA this week is uh, Zion Williamson finally made his uh, pro debut and he did it a big way. And I still find it interesting that uh, there's a lot of debate on uh, you know, I've heard it on two or three different shows about, well, you know, with the way he plays and all that, he's going, he's going to be injury prone that, uh, you know, he's not going to have a long career. And I just find it amazing that people are speculating about that <laughs> and not give you know, and, and taking away credit from his uh, tremendous uh, debut. Well, there's a few things. I mean, he's a tremendous athlete. I think under, you know, while I understand that his his weight is on the higher side in the NBA, he's a tremendous athlete. I mean, there's there's a ton of NFL offensive linemen who are tremendous athletes, and, and they're they're large human beings. So mm-hmm. I think you know they they discount his athleticism. I, I think he you know, like he had a great debut, um, but I, I think he's he's not a three point shooter, and that's obviously what he you know what he was able to do the other night against the Spurs. I think he had four threes in that fourth quarter. That's not his game, obviously. Ultimately, his game is athleticism. His game is getting to the hoop. Uh, his game is is really kind of in the in the low block area. Um, and so, if he develops an outside shot, even better. But uh, I'm more curious to see kind of a natural flow of a game. What what you'll get from Zion? To me, that that was a it was a great performance, and, and again, it was electrifying. But I want to see kind of a true Zion type game out of him. Um, but it's so tough with this minute restriction. I mean, he didn't he didn't really get a flow, and you could tell he was frustrated. Um, you could tell even Alva Gentry was a little frustrated. You know, the Pelicans coach. And so I'm, I'm really curious to see if you can get him in a flow, what his what his game really will look like. Um, and, you know, is he going to be able to to be that superior athlete, you know, on that level? Because obviously there's there's a lot of great athletes, you know, throughout the entire NBA. So um, it, it'll be interesting to see how they how they uh, play him the rest of the season. Um, do they continue this you know, limit uh, of minutes? Do they let him finally kind of let the reins off? Um I think he's he's going to be an interesting story to watch over the next couple of seasons. Just you know how he can transform the NBA if he's able to make the mark that uh, that a lot of folks think he can make. Yeah, and I think to his credit too, I had uh, understand that he spent a lot of time shooting threes uh, during his rehab, trying to improve that part of his game. And you know, I think that's what the great ones do. Hey, Magic Johnson couldn't shoot a three pointer to save his life when he started in the NBA. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that that's a that's a great point because I don't I don't think he's going to be a consistent three point shooter. But you want to have enough of a shot that people have to honor it. 
right? That people have to say when he steps out behind the three-point line that you can't just give him the shot like you do like Rajon Rondo or somebody, right? That you have to kind of hedge out a little bit because you know he can probably make it. And if he can develop that, then, I mean, that that's his bread and butter, right? So if he gets you to draw out to the three-point line, you know, with his quickness, athleticism, he makes one move, he's super strong, he puts a shoulder into you, and before you know it, he's at the rim for an and one. So if he can if he can at least keep you honest with the three-ball and, and shoot a decent clip, I think that absolutely will open up his game. And so, you know, all of... All transparency, uh, you know, unfortunately his shot is, is still pretty flat-footed and, and there's not a ton of rotation, so there's probably still some work to be done. But if he can at least make you honor it, I think that only bodes to uh, to help increase his skill set. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is because, you know, even though we're colleagues at the Nightline Sports Network, I do the AAC report, so I really don't uh, talk about UCF much. So I get a chance to do that with you here on this program. And... Uh, Speaking of the Knights, you know, when they, they went toe-to-toe with Zion last year, but, you know, 80% of that team uh, pretty much gone going into this season. They got off to a good out-of-conference start, struggled out of the gate in conference. What do you make of where uh, UCF basketball is right at this stage? Uh, inconsistent, I guess, is the word I would use. And, uh, and you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it was a, it was a lot of pieces kind of coming together and learning to play together for the first time. And you saw them in non-conference, and they had a, a fairly good non-conference schedule. They, you know, they lost a close one to to Oklahoma, which hurt. Miami, you know, got the better of them um, by a pretty fair margin. Um, but they, they had a pretty good non-conference schedule. You saw them have some concerns with some teams that they shouldn't have problems with. A Green Bay, a Sacred Heart, a Bethune Cookman. But I think we all assumed that was just part of the growing pains of that team drilling together, and the hope being that they would walk into conference play ready to go. And unfortunately, that was that was a, a bit of a disappointment. And they started off zero and four in conference, um, and, and didn't really look like they were in a lot of those games. Um, the Temple game was the first one. You know, they had a chance on, on that game and, and gave it away late. Houston blew them out pretty good. SMU was. Uh, you know, was unfortunately just better, and then Cincinnati did, did the same. They rebounded with two wins, but it's inconsistency, and it's kind of the same thing I talked about with the Magic: is who's the guy on the team that you say this is the person that we can we can count on to get as a bucket when we need one? Right now, it's Colin Smith. But again, and, and a low post player, it's really tough to, to get him the ball, particularly in college basketball where you can sag a zone back and you know you can do some of the other things you can't do in the NBA as well. So I think that's the part is who, who's that person? We need that person to step up. Matt Milan, the transfer from William & Mary, he struggled mightily during the, the first part of, of, the, of the non-conference, even the conference schedule. He's starting to really find his shot. Um, which, which you know, I think is not coincidental to the fact that UCF has now won the last two games. Um, and so, if he can continue to to, to find uh, ways to, to get the ball in the basket, if Dazon Ingram can be more aggressive, we saw him do that against Tulane, and that was probably his best performance. You know, if if those two guys plus Colin Smith can can be more consistent. You throw in a Darren Green Jr., true freshman, who can hit the three ball. Uh, you throw in uh, Brendan Mahan, who's, who's been a pretty good energy player for them, um, both either starting or off the bench. Dre Fuller. They have the pieces, but at this point, you know, Mike and I talked about that again on the Suns of UCF this week, which is just really unfortunately at this point, the hope is UCF can get hot down the stretch and really just be a nuisance for some teams in the American Conference, either down the stretch or into the tournament, because it doesn't look like at this point we're going we're gonna to be tournament bound, so it's really going to be about, you know, can we be a nuisance and really kind of 
you know, muck up the, uh, the, the, the tournament here towards the end of the year uh, for the rest of the American Conference. Yeah, and you mentioned the name that I thought uh, was interesting, Dazon Ingram, because I thought he was very aggressive early in the year and kind of disappeared for a while until the last couple of ball games. He looks like, you know, it looks like this team is much better when, when he is uh, aggressive and going to the basket. Yeah, it, you're absolutely right. There were some games where he was almost non-existent, and uh, you know, and, and I, I don't know how much of that is what you know what Johnny Dawkins wants to run from a from an offensive standpoint. How much of that is him, you know, just not maybe not feeling comfortable, not knowing where his teammates are, and that's been the weird part about it is you you were kind of waiting for that one person to sort of you know be that person to to take the you know take the reins in a, in a close game. I think that was really the bugaboo of the Temple game is we were winning for the majority mm-hmm. of that game, yep. and then down the stretch. You know, we we just we didn't have anybody who really kind of stepped up and said, "Give me the ball, I'll I'll take control of it." A la BJ Taylor from all the years previous, we were so used to that as a fan base of the ball was in BJ's hands. He was either going to make a good shot or make a good decision. And and this year, it's who, who's who's going to have the ball in their hands. I think the hope is that it can be Ingram. But uh, to your point, he's, he's been inconsistent with it. So I think that's going to be really telling again down the stretch as you know UCF really in. In my opinion, the next two games for UCF were at Wichita State on a, on a Saturday night, and then we turn back around and, and uh, we have Memphis coming to UCF on uh, on Wednesday the 29th. To me, those are must-win games, Jeff, because if they don't win those two games, then at that point they fall to two and six in conference. So these are these are must-win games for UCF, and you know I know I'll be glued in uh, to the TV tomorrow night on on Saturday to see you know how they come out. We we haven't had a ton of success at Wichita State. It's a tough place to play. So I think tomorrow will be a really telling, um, a telling uh, uh, show for the Knights if uh, they can they can come back after after that nice win against uh, against USF and, uh, and and get a win on the road against Wichita. Yeah, and then you also look at the other thing that kind of went against them too is the entire conference from top to bottom looks much improved over a year ago. Look at Tulsa at the oh top goodness, of the yes. standings. <laughs> I, I mean, I had to double check that score the other night. I was like, "Are they winning by forty? Is that really a thing?" And uh, and yeah, it, it, the conference is is certainly been a, uh, an interesting conference this year. Obviously, we're used to Cincinnati being strong. They've had their ups and downs. You know, I think there's some thought that South Florida would be a little better, and they're kind of right in the middle of the road. You know, SMU is is still playing pretty well. Obviously, Memphis was expected to to, to be a top team, but after Wiseman left, I think they they've kind of fallen. Wichita was ranked at one point. And so it, in UConn, you never really know what you're going to get from UConn. And, you know, and, and Danny Hurley's a little bit off his rocker at times, so you don't know what you're going to get there. Uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting conference for sure this year. And I'm, that's why I'm really curious how UCF can play in the mix. If we can't be in the tournament, I do think they have a chance to, if they play well, they can at least make a run in the tournament and at least make it entertaining and, uh, and make life miserable maybe for some of their conference foes. Yeah, I thought it was funny the other night. Uh, Kelly Hines is the beat writer for uh, the Tulsa World, uh, kept up. Uh, uh, tweeting out the score and at the end of it kept kept putting this is not a typo <laughs> yeah i had to double check i really did i was like wait that can't be that can't be right like is this maybe i thought it was the women's score like i, I had to i had to keep checking that because it, it just seemed you know admittedly i haven't been following uh, the 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 frank haith led tulsa team as much but um that I, I i don't know if that says more about tulsa or more about uh, memphis but either way it was uh, it was a surprising result yeah, no question about it. And then uh, interesting news for the football team this week. Kadri Jones, who had uh, hit the transfer portal, has transfer portaled right back in. How about that? 
Yeah, I feel you know uh, this was an interesting one because yeah, when Quadri left, I think by and large the the fan base and even the even his teammates, I think they saw that you know Quadri's a, a, a solid player. And, you know, they recognize with the emergence of, of Dylan Gabriel, you know, with whatever's happening with Mackenzie Milton and with Daryl Mack, that they understood that Quadri wasn't going to see the field. And I think by and large, his teammates were happy for him to say, this kid can play. He should go play someplace. And so, you know, universally, sometimes players leave and there's a little hurt feelings. I, I, don't, I didn't get the sense that any of that was true. But then he comes back, and I, I don't get the sense that any of them were the least bit uh, upset that he left. I think they all welcomed him back. And here's the thing Mike and I talked about again on the Suns UTF this week, which was I think we forget that, you know, these are college kids, right? These are kids 18 to 22 years old. Quadri's from Orlando, went to high school in Orlando. His family, his friends are in Orlando. You know, and, and just like any one of us who went away to school for the first time and you were in a, in a, in a foreign city and with people you didn't know, you know, you start to recognize and sort of appreciate what you have. And, uh, and so I'm just happy for Quadri as a, as a person. That you know, he he put himself back in a situation that makes him happy. You know, I think he understands his role on the team, but I, I think it's so important for continuity uh, for that quarterback room. Obviously, Jeff Levy left as offensive coordinator. You know, we brought in a new QB coach and Joey Halsley. We have uh, Alex Golesh now, who's kind of co-offensive coordinator. Stability in that room, I think, is the most important priority right now for for Dylan Gabriel. He trusts Quadri. They have a close relationship. I think having his voice back in there is is a huge thing for Night Nation. Whether or not Quadri sees the field a lot, I mean, that'll be to be determined. But I think just having his voice in the room um, to to help to provide more continuity for Dylan Gabriel, I think, is a a huge win for UCF. And not bad insurance to have it that that deep, too. Uh, You you look at uh, Gabriel as the starter. Uh, Mac is going to, it looks like, you know, they're going to run packages for him. So he's going to get a little bit of playing time here and there. Um, but just to have that, uh, that third guy who knows the system and uh, has performed is definitely a luxury that a lot of teams would love to have. Yeah, I mean, things turned quickly for that UCF quarterback room, right? It was it was probably a month ago we were all talking like, oh, my goodness, you know, Quadri's gone. Is Daryl Mack going to go? You know, KZ might not come back. You know, we had a recruit uh, out of Atlanta named Mike Wright who flipped from uh, from UCF to Vanderbilt, and we lost him. People were freaking out, and it was, oh, my goodness, we have no quarterbacks. Hayden Kingston uh, is out of eligibility. And it was almost like literally it was just Dylan Gabriel in the quarterback room. And how quickly, you know, four weeks later, you know, and, and all those pieces are back in, in, uh, in store. So, again, I, I think it's just huge for that continuity element. Um, you know, with a young quarterback, I, I think to have those voices in the room that he knows that he trusts. If you, you add McKenzie there, you add DJ Mack. Um, I'm curious to see how Hypo figures all this out. Um, you know, it's, it's a good problem to have, but it, it certainly will be interesting to figure out how he, how he you know, layers in Daryl Mack. And then I don't want to talk about it too much because I don't know – what's fair to talk about. I don't want to layer expectations, but if Mackenzie Milton is healthy, I mean, it's going to be a very interesting uh, fall camp and, uh, and 2020 season for, uh, for UCF. And, and I'm curious to see how coach Heupel really would handle that situation because that certainly will, uh, will have some uh, strong opinions across the board on all sides. So again, I don't want to put too much pressure on Mackenzie. I, I don't know what his, what his latest update is on, on his health, but if he's able to come back, it's going to be a very, very interesting season. Yeah, definitely uncharted waters uh, as far as that goes. And what I'm looking forward to seeing next year is kind of what we saw in the bowl game. You know, we know, you know that uh, Gabe Davis is going to the NFL. Adrian Killens is going to make his uh, try to get into the pros. 
And I think what we saw there was we saw, you know, a little bit more emergence of Otis Anderson, and we saw Marlon Williams. And I think uh, we kind of saw a glimpse of, of, the, of the 2020 season in the Gasparilla Bowl. Yeah, yeah. I, I also wonder how much uh, you know Alex Golesh, the the new co-offensive coordinator who comes from Iowa State. He was a he was the tight ends coach there. I do think uh, you know you, you wonder with Hypo. We've had a few different players who have joined us on the show, and and as we've talked to each of them about Hypo's offense, really the theme that we keep hearing is that Hypo looks at at his roster figures out who his best players are, where his matchups are, and that's what he attacks. And the reality was, last season, you'd be a fool if you didn't go to Gabe Davis, right? Gabe Davis was was head and shoulders, you know, one of the best receivers in the country, and so you'd be a fool not to figure out ways to get Gabe Davis the ball. Well, with Gabe off the field going forward, you wonder, will there be more diversification of the offense? Will Heupel try some different things? Can the tight end get involved more, which I know is something a lot of fans were, were asking about. You know, will you see the emergence of of Greg McCray again from a running position? How Otis Anderson gets the ball? I think there's so many weapons. I'd really love to see Hypel get a little bit more creative this year and find ways to get these guys in the offense. I think you saw a glimpse of that in the Gasparilla Bowl, but the reality was they only had about two weeks, if that, to to really prep for that game. I'm really curious to see if we can diversify this year and and leverage Trey Nixon, leverage Marlon Williams, Jacob Harris. Jalen Robinson, the transfer from Oklahoma, will be eligible this year. We have two tight ends coming in. One of them is Gabe Davis's brother. You know, don't forget about you know, McCray and Ventavious Thompson in the backfield. So many weapons across the board. I'd love to see Hypel diversify a little bit this year and, and really leverage all of those weapons and, uh, uh, and find new ways to, uh, to, uh, to attack defenses because, obviously, at some point, defenses will figure us out. So can we continue to stay ahead of the curve? I think that'll be really telling in terms of Hypel and, and sort of year three and his maturation as a head coach. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to seeing how, how, he, how he takes year three as far as that goes because, I mean, you look at uh, – the fact is his record is so good in two seasons, you know, how many how many schools would, would kill for that kind of success <laughs> right for two consecutive years? Well, yeah, this is a this is a swing year too, right? But you know, based on the way that his contract is structured, you know, when he signed Danny White um, put in a ten million dollar buyout. But after the third year, that buyout, I think, cuts in half or something along those lines. So, you know, I think a lot of schools were, were probably a little bit scared from, from touching him uh, at a $10 million price tag. But if that, if that price tag is now $5 million or $4 million, you know, and he has another 10-win season, um, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see how that, how that comes to fruition. But I do think this is a, this is a pivotal year for, for Hypo. Uh, from a coaching perspective, because now this is this is a group of largely his guys, right? I think the knock on him the first year was, well, these are Frost from your recruits, and he's winning with Scott Frost team. You know, last year was a bit of a mixture. This season, he's, he'll have a handful of guys that are kind of holdovers, but this is really going to be sort of his imprint and a lot of his guys. So this will be a telling year to figure out uh, what kind of what kind of coach we have in, in Heupel and uh, and sort of what his long term future may be for UCF. Or hate to say it. But maybe someplace else too. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll save that. We'll save that uh, that that conjecture for another time. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, so Adam, before we uh, before we call it a night, uh, please uh, uh, promote the Sons of UCF and everything you got going on. 
Yeah, Sons of UCF. We are part of the uh, the Nightline Sports Network, uh, which is uh, which is a, just a great content factory of UCF stuff. If you're a UCF fan, if you're a fan of the American Conference, as you know, Jeff, uh, so much good stuff comes out of the Nightline Sports Network. Uh, Andrew and Trace have their flagship show. Uh, Mike and I do a show. Usually comes out Tuesday nights. Uh, the AAC Report with you really follows us on Wednesdays. Uh, you know, Andrew is is uh, has ventured into the terrestrial radio game, and you can hear him on five eighty. ESPN Radio. So, if you're a UCF fan, if you love what the American Conference is about, the Nightline Sports Network is is the best place to get uh, get your coverage. Mike and I have a different kind of show. You know, we we don't take things too seriously. We have a little fun, uh, but we really had an opportunity to have a lot of uh, former players on and and re- really kind of uh, found our niche with more of the long form interview. Our latest episode features uh, former UCF center Joey Grant. So, you know, we're hoping to find more uh, more interviews for for fans this summer and uh, and take a more of a, of a lighter approach to what happens with UCF but uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Sons UCF you can follow Mike at UCF Mike one and uh, make sure you subscribe to that nightline sports network feed every Tuesday night uh, we, we will be uh, we'll be in your feed and uh, you can listen to the show yeah and you guys are doing an excellent job I might add and uh, Adam this has been a whole lot of fun thanks so much for being on it's always a pleasure Jeff I appreciate you having me back all right and with that we are done here Thanks for listening to Jeff Allen Sports Talk. Follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Allen underscore 88, on Facebook at Jeff Allen 88, and the website JeffAllenSportsTalk.com. And you can reach out to the show anytime by email, JeffAllenSportsTalk at gmail.com. Jeff Allen Sports Talk is brought to you exclusively by Kramer's Salve for Dogs. Kramer's Salve is a safe and natural approach to help your best friend live an itch-free life. It's made from the finest ingredients so it stops itching, heals hot spots, and painful inflamed skin. Kramer's Salve contains a proprietary blend of neem, an ingredient known for its healing properties. A 4-ounce 6-month supply, including shipping, is just $30, and the 2-ounce 3-month supply, including shipping, is only $20. Help your dog end the itch and hot spot cycle. Order today at KramerSalve.net. That's K-R-A-M-E-R-S-A-L-V-E. LVE.net.